Well, hello, friends and lovers. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. Delighted to have you. My name is Scott Morris. I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Hello there. And today is one of those great podcast events where we just talk about some films that we saw during this month. So uh, without much further ado, we should probably just start doing that. And first on our list is uh, this is the Sister Brothers. Drew, do you care to talk about that? No. Here's the thing, you, you've introduced this podcast as the podcast where we talk about the films we've seen and you may be um, prosecuted under the trade description <laughs> or something, Scott, because in fact, um, much as I may want to or try to, I'm not actually going to talk about this film. <laughs> uh, beyond, well, a couple of sentences. I, um, I really like modern westerns and I was quite looking forward to this. It's looked interesting. It's based apparently on a darkly comic book uh, of the same name, The Sisters Brothers, by a Canadian author. And it's directed by um, the Frenchman Jacques Audiard um, and co-written by Audiard and another Frenchman, Thomas Bidigan. And I thought, oh, this would be quite interesting. This is a French take or a Canadian's take on <laughs> the most American genre there is. Okay, right, let's, let's see how this goes. And it's got a cast that I like. It's got Reese Ahmed. It has John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix, Jake Gyllenhaal. This is all good, I think. Mm-hmm. So there were some murderers. There, there were some murderers, and um, it's not funny even slightly. And I watched it. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally out of stuff to say about this. I sat down <laughs> to write notes for the show. And yeah, there's nothing to say. I didn't like it, but I didn't hate it or anything. It's, um, yeah, <laughs> that's it. That that's what I, all I have to say. about the sisters, brothers, there were some murderers. In the grand scheme of things, it is a film that you saw. Yes, <laughs> precisely. Moving on. Yes. Well, if we do want to move on, I suppose it will be to another comic book adaptation. Uh, a second crack at the whip for Hellboy, I suppose. Guillermo del Toro is a much lauded director and a pretty sound guy from everything I've ever seen but I don't actually think he's that great of a filmmaker uh, which is apparently sacrilege to say in some circles but um, <laughs> not in these ones fortunately I feel safe to say the truth here uh, certainly my hit rate for his films is probably 1 in 3 at best though I would still like to have seen his take on The Hobbit which I like to think you wouldn't have needlessly and cynically stretched to three instalments. Yeah. My point being that rather than being outraged at, beyond my general distaste for remakes and reboots, he wasn't returning to the Hellboy series. I didn't care. I don't actually think either of the two Guillermo del Toro Hellboy films are much good. Though, in all honesty, I now remember little about them except for Karel Rodin being a terrible Nazi. <laughs> all Nazis are terrible, obviously. I mean, he was terrible at being a Nazi. <laughs> And as I write this, I come to the realisation that Carl Roden, in fact, is not even a Nazi in Hellboy. He's just Nazi adjacent. <laughs> Though, still terrible. And I realise that this was, in fact, a hangover from Bulletproof Monk, in which he was a Nazi. And yes, also terrible. <laughs> Remember Bulletproof Monk, Scott? I actually do, at least in terms of the poster. I don't think I can remember anything about the film. But uh, yeah, another uh, failed attempt to get uh, Chow Yun-Fat. Fats into the, the, the Western cinema. Yeah. Yeah. And a weird co-star too, um, Sean William Scott. Yes, yes. 
Um, all of which is to say, I had no sentimentality towards the first two screen adaptations of Mike Mignola's comic book. So, that said, I was open to Dog Soldier's Neil Marshall's taking it. In Arthurian times, there was this guy called Arthur. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah, weird, eh? <laughs> um, apparently, his forces are close to succumbing, so he goes to treat with Mila Jovovich's generic baddie four, yeah, or whatever her name is. And as far as Mila Jovovich goes, if her name isn't Lilu, then I'm not interested. <laughs> but he tricks her and kills her. For good measure, he also chops her up, seals the body parts of mystical chests, and has the chest stored in various holy sites around the island. Because she's A, not fully dead, so well done in the whole not killing her by killing her there, Arthur. <laughs> and B is fully pissed. But has, <laughs> you can imagine it would put a bit of a dent in your plans <laughs> and, and put you in a bit of a bad mood. <laughs> But she has to wait 1,600 years until World War the Pig's delinquent sibling, Stephen Graham, comes along to put her back together again. Once restored, and after much violence and gore, she attempts to reclaim her dominion over Britain, and then the world, and the only people standing in her way are Hellboy, his dad, Ian McShane, and the Bureau for Paranormal Research on Unnecessarily Encumbering People with Dodgy English Accents, embodied here <laughs> by Sasha Lane and Daniel Day Kim. Hellboy 2019 has received some truly awful reviews, so in leaving the cinema, I was pleasantly surprised to find that they're largely wrong, and also perplexed as to the degree of negativity. It really, really doesn't deserve the slating it's received. It's not without its faults, far from it, but I quite enjoyed my time with it, and I certainly like it more than I did the Guillermo del Toro films. One thing I do remember enjoying from the original films was Ron Perlman's turn as the big red fella, and that is one area where the reboot is worse. Physically, David Harbour looks the part, with his crazy bodybuilding giving him the appropriate physique. As an aside, memory suggested he and Perlman looked largely similar, but turns out memory is wrong, as on checking, <laughs> Big Ron comes in closer to regular man painted red. <laughs> but the performance just isn't there. Strange, actually, as it seemed perfect casting. Harbour having displayed over two seasons of Stranger Things in particular, his ability to gruffly, dryly and wittily deliver lines, with the, necess- with the necessary touches of weariness or vexation. In Hellboy, though, the weariness remains, but the wit and dryness is largely gone, and I wonder if it has been submerged under the makeup. But the upsides are in the world and creature designs, from scouse pig monsters to giants to deformed witches of Eastern European folklore. This last, Baba Yaga, is one of the creepiest things I've seen in a while, and the interior of her house, and in particular the menu on her table, are effectively unsettling. There are a number of little things that niggle, though, that suggest a disconnect between the different aspects of production and writing. The aforementioned Scouse Pigman is of the fairy folk, and they are said to be deterred by iron. And indeed, this is shown as important in the story. Strange, then, that the character's clothing clearly seems to be constructed partially from the metal. (laughs) See also the famously Welsh legend Merlin, played by the extremely and unmistakably Irish Brian Gleeson. (laughs) Now, none of these are huge demerits on their own, but they're cumulatively deleterious. There are definitely other problems with it, like the Nazis wearing 3D glasses and the fortunate arrival of Nazi hunting hero The Lobster. Um, 
apparently in the, it's in the comic books I, I just discovered today it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen <laughs> basically a cartoon character turns up with armour and a, the shape of a lobster spray paint or a lobster's claw spray painted onto his body armour oh good lord it's the most <laughs> abysmal ridiculous thing I've seen in a good long time which is um, <laughs> um, as well as too many instances of gore without much style but all in all I enjoyed it recently well though very much more for the design and some of the set pieces than the story itself which is very much of the meh variety <laughs> I'd quite like to have had the opportunity to see another film from these producers but the terrible reviews in box office have presumably put paid to that more's the pity Anyway, it's hardly a masterpiece, but it has merit. Don't believe the anti-hype. <laughs> yeah, I will pick this up at some point and give it a look. Um, think about yourself, it's, it's perhaps telling that you'll probably spend as much time when you start, start talking about this Hellboy, talking about the previous Hellboys by the Hellboy. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree, I was not all that enamoured with those two. They were perfectly fine as far as I can tell. and uh, It's got the, the usual... Uh, Del Toro visual style and flair, which kind of worked, I think, for it for the most part. But yeah, I wasn't all that impressed with them, so it kind of dampened my enthusiasm for this. And the, the slew of negative views certainly put paid to any idea of going to see it. But um, it's heartening to see it's actually not so bad. I, I may actually give this one a look and see where it gets to. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept for a film, at least if nothing else. But yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating because I say there are some really good designs in it. I get like guess that this the source of them is the comic books because mm. the Toro stuff obviously had some good designs too but it is really interesting as I said Baba Yaga probably creepy right yeah I mean you have like a soup made from fingers and stuff you know it's pretty <laughs> horrible stuff but like intentionally so and that works really well and it's more interesting it's, there are like some bits that are like very very gory but they're almost blackly comic at the same time and they work quite well whereas other bits suffer just from being just gore for the sake of gore Hmm. Uh, and the main plot is is really pretty dull and it's not helped by Mila Jovovich well being as she is in almost everything not good (laughs) and also encumbered by an English accent that she can't do particularly well Hmm. but it's um, yeah it it does not deserve the absolute trounce it's had I do not know where that came from at all yeah, and I like Neil Marshall enough still these days to at least give his work a look in. However, I've noticed on Twitter there seems to be a bit of a, a movement to try and go back and say that Doomsday was in any way not absolute garbage, and I'm having no truck with that whatsoever. Oh, no, no, no. Doomsday is awful. Doomsday is um, <laughs> um, a terrible, terrible, terrible film. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I can't get behind that at all. But um, yeah, he did direct one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones and he did direct some of Constantine, which was one of the better TV series from the kind of comic book-inspired DC University type things. So yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll give this a go at some point and uh, yeah, report back if so inclined. So I can't think of any, even not even the most tenuous linking device. Um, so we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on from Hellboy which is put together from lots of pieces to build a hole to something else based on something you put... doesn't really distinguish it from anything else in existence. I'll, God, I'll just stop now, Scott. Tell us about Lego. Just stop. You're, you're only bringing shame upon yourself and your dojo. <laughs> uh, 
Yes, uh, but Lego. this is on brand for us. Yes, <laughs> we have no shame. Uh, the Lego Movie Two, the second part, um, returning uh, from uh, Phil Lord, Chris Miller, uh, directed by Mike Mitchell, is basically picking up from where the last film left. Uh, I've not written any notes for this, so apologies if this is a bit fragmented. But uh, in very general terms, after it set about roughly five years after the previous film, where clearly the people who were involved in the framing device, actually the kids who were playing with this and sort of metaforming the narrative, you know, there's, there's a lot of layers to this film if you want to dig into it, but it's so silly a film, I don't think it's really worth doing. Uh, but yes, the the it's now set in a kind of post apocalyptic world where uh, everyone is now very, uh, very emotive and very, very sad about their the current situation, apart of course from Emmett, who remains relentlessly upbeat Um, but things take a turn when five of the heroes of this realm are captured by a a general mayhem who shows up from the alien realms Sistar system Yes, from the Sistar system, which of course refers to the kid that's playing with him, Sister and I'm sure you can see where this is going Um, Yes, so uh, they are captured and Emmett sets out to recapture them and he's aided along the way by Rex Awesome Vest or something like that who and I don't think I'm spoiling anything here, turns out to be Rex from the future, and I don't think that's really a spoiler because it's voiced by Chris Pratt and he's basically playing the character he played from Jurassic World somehow, yeah. Um, With dinosaurs. Yes, yes. Um, Metatextual is a strange term to apply to something that's so obviously a kid's movie based on bricks, but apparently that's what you've got here, and it is a film that where apparently that fourth wall wasn't ever required. Lots of very strange references uh, to other works that the actors have appeared in um, the last film itself there's whole sections dealing with how <laughs> with the soundtrack from the previous film uh, um, and it's a very complicated film for uh, what is what should really be a throwaway kids franchise and surprisingly for me it all worked really really quite well I I think if I remember correctly I was much more positive about the, the Lego stuff in general uh, but I didn't mind the first Lego movie all that much um, whereas I think you hated it if I remember correctly No, so, I hated the Lego Ninjago movie I right. just very much disliked the okay, right. first Lego film yeah. Whereas I, I didn't even mind Ninjago all that much but uh, and I really liked uh, Lego Batman and this is up there with Lego Batman for me. It's really quite funny. Uh, but I think I would probably need to go through and watch it again to get a lot of the kind of Easter eggy type references that are sort of hidden away in there. It's quite a densely packed film from that kind of view. I have no idea how well it plays with a ch- child's audience because it is. It seems like an awful lot of its humour relies upon some. It, it, it's all quite metatextual, as I say. Uh, there's a lot of jokes here that don't really make sense unless you've seen a lot of films that the voice actors have been in outside of this film. You know, it's, there's a lot of kind of crossover effects that, that, as it happens for me, made this quite an enjoyable watch. A lot um, of in jokes. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, as I say, I don't know how well that plays for kids, um, but for me, I quite enjoyed it. So I found it mostly funny for the most part. It bombs along at a fair old pace. I suppose it's kind of predictable. Um, you could argue it's maybe letting its own internal logic down if you think that Lego pieces can actually animate themselves in the real world, but that's probably not worth <laughs> not worth thinking about too hard. It is actually a movie about Lego at the end of the day, so maybe perhaps 
uh, not get into the actual consequences of time traveling in between this worlds. But uh, yeah, I think overall, I quite I was quite fond of it. I only watched it last night, so I had a lot of time to bed in, but it seemed quite inoffensive and yeah, for the most part, quite amusing. Yeah, I would recommend it. What do you think, Drew? Well, indeed, have you seen it? Yes. <laughs> going into this, I was one for three from Lego Films, mm. as it just mentioned i hated the lego ninjago movie i very much disliked the lego movie mm. and i really liked the lego batman movie yeah i thought that was really <laughs> really funny yeah um so will, will arnett may be the best batman <laughs> <laughs> so it was certainly a very i'm a very mixed prospect going into this mm. i have now seen this and i'm one for four no oh. Because this was bad. Now, it didn't bother me as much as the original Lego film because I described it at the time, and I honestly don't recall now whether that was on FUDS and Film Days or it was in a previous incarnation of the one liner that I talked about it. But mm. I do remember my main criticism was that basically it was the Lego sermon. Um, yeah. And it was incredibly, insufferably preachy. This film has a little of that still. Well, actually, not a reasonable bit of it still, but it's not quite as bad. So it didn't bother me quite as much. I was mostly just bored. I didn't find mm. it funny. I didn't care about the characters or the story, and it just never, ever engaged me. I have no particular antipathy towards it. It was just boring. Yeah. Um, and I remember that on certainly around Twitter at the time of the first film people were talking about how good and how catchy that Everything Is Awesome song was I'm um, thinking you people all need New Year's because it's just crap <laughs> um, it wasn't catchy or anything it was like no it's just crap um, with the horrible vocoded voices and auto-tuned voices I don't like I, mean, I apparently can't escape them nowadays so um, and then the second one tries it again with a song that's supposed to get stuck in your head and I immediately couldn't think what the song was, so it did not get stuck in my head, so well done, you failed there. Um, and, yeah, I don't have a lot to say. I guess I know antipathy towards it, just, it's just dull. And the only thing that I remember particularly being struck by was that at one point we're supposed to be really sad that Emmett's house gets destroyed, but you've spent a film and the first portion of this um, establishing <laughs> that you can build pretty much anything you want nigh on instantaneously so the fact that the house gets destroyed <laughs> is meaningless yeah but that seems to be quite an important part of the the story here so i was like yeah that, that, it doesn't work it's just dull yeah yeah so that's it i would certainly say if you, if you didn't think that the first film was in any way interesting then this film is really a direct continuation of it and its style uh you're not going to. It's not adding anything new to the mix that would sort of make you reconsider your opinions. So I can kind of exactly see where you're coming from in that regard. All I can say is I enjoyed it more than you did. I found it funny, and if you, and you didn't, and that's always the critical test for comedy, isn't it? And it's all very uh, subjective. Yeah. But yeah. That, I think I probably don't like Chris Pratt all that much. I certainly don't find he has much of an impact on me, right? Um, because I'd forgotten it was him. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it got to the end because he's—I didn't find his voice. Because I'm normally really good at recognising voices, and certainly there's a good chance of like, oh, that's familiar. Who's that? And it might bother me to a while to like pause in my head who it is. But yeah, it's like, oh, it's Elizabeth Banks, and there's Alison Brie, and 
Will Arnett and I recognise all the other voices and like yeah. Tiffany Haddish's voice. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything, but um, <laughs> yeah. apparently her voice was still feeling well enough to me, um, even though I've probably never heard it before, so I'm saying it's something else. <laughs> and out of the end, it's like, I'm looking at the credits. Oh, Chris Pratt, right, okay. So maybe <laughs> on me at all. So, well, that yeah. maybe was a big part of it since he's a star. Yeah. Um, and an awful lot of the film's humour does depend upon you knowing, well, recognising Chris Pratt's doing the voice for the character, which is a strange way to structure a film, really, I suppose. But yeah, if you don't, if you don't get that, then yeah. It's only made the dinosaurs make some sort of sense at the end. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, right, okay, now I get the by the raptors. Um, <laughs> but uh, beyond that, it's like, nah, it's, I think. Chris Pratt kind of just yeah, washes the, off me for the most part. He's definitely not the best thing about the Guardians of the Galaxy films. Yeah, he actively irritated me in Avengers: Infinity War. Well, that's more because his character caused all the problems because he's an idiot. <laughs> um, but the only thing I think I actually like him in is Parks and Rec. Yeah, in which he's great, but everything else, I just, he doesn't probably do anything for me. <laughs> Makes no impact on me at all. So there. Yeah. Yeah, you just don't like him since he got uh, chiselled. That's the yeah. And can I just say my, my favourite characters in this are the Raptors, particularly the one that wants a that wants to get the Wi-Fi password off Susan. <laughs> Fair enough. Shall we move on from that to a film that is not even remotely related to Lego Movie Two? So I shan't even attempt to make a linking device in sticks. Yes. Uh... You could go from bricks to sticks, I suppose. That would have been that would have been an easy one, but it's too obvious for me. Anyway, yeah, sticks. Why is there not a Lego film set in London called Brixton? You'd think there would be, wouldn't there? Yeah. <laughs> They're missing an opportunity there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Susanna Vols Rike is a doctor in Germany. We first encounter her as part of a huge team of personnel from multiple emergency services responding to a car crash where she directs the efforts of this expansive and expensive collection of resources to rescue a single person who has endangered their own life through their own recklessness. After the success and the demonstration of her ability in Cool Head, we meet Rike again in Gibraltar as she stocks her 12-metre sailing yacht with provisions for her solo voyage to Ascension Island in the South Atlantic. Prepared and relaxed, Rika begins her journey, and the first third of Styx passes in serenity and tranquility the sailor's routine and the emptiness of the ocean producing an almost hypnotic and meditative state. So unexpected contact with another vessel and the first speech in almost half an hour brings a warning of bad weather and Rika will soon face a storm, both literally and metaphorically. Once the storm has passed and Rika groggily comes to, she spots a vessel a few hundred metres from her. It is an ancient fishing boat, adrift and overloaded with a desperate human cargo. As she approaches, some of those aboard begin to throw themselves overboard, many immediately drowning. Rika enters the water in order to save one swimmer who managed to get close to her yacht. Kingsley, Gedi and Wikes Odore, a 14-year-old boy suffering from undernutrition, exhaustion, dehydration, irregular heartbeat and chemical burns. Following the orders of the Coast Guard, she distances herself from the boat and treats Kingsley while awaiting the conspicuously absent rescue. As time passes, Rika's conscience and the now-awake Kingsley compel her to act. Austrian director Wolfgang Fischer and his co-writer Ika Kunzel wanted to comment on the migrant crisis and chose to do so with this efficient, intelligent and unsentimental moral thriller. Fischer and Kunzel keep their politics, whatever they might be, out of the film. 
You might think you know them, but towards the end you'll realise you're wrong, as a few crucial details show it to be more neutral in tone than you might expect. Another potential stumbling block, and one it would be very easy for for many filmmakers to trip over, is Rika being seen as the white saviour. But that's not the character at all. Indeed, as well as being a symbol of society, she is also, in many ways, a victim. Thoughtful and thought-provoking, Styx, named and well-named after the river from Greek mythology that separates the worlds of the living from the dead, is a morality tale, distinct from politics and free from sermonising. Shot entirely practically, and with a multiple-week shoot on open water, though off the coast of Malta rather than than in eastern Atlantic, everything is viewed from Rika's perspective, and we see and hear only what she does. As such, the occupants of the distressed vessel are, for much of the time, only dim silhouettes and cacophonous howling until action brings them into focus. But this use of allegory, and others, like the hulking vastness of a commercial container ship next to Rika's yacht, is used sparingly and effectively. This dedication to realism is very much to the film's favour, adding more than a simple veneer of veracity to the action. The standout moment in this regard is the real-time sequence of Rika trying to bring the exhausted and almost unconscious Kingsley on board her yacht. Though there may be some, I cannot currently recall another film in which the term dead weight was so understandable or so convincingly portrayed. The exertion and struggle of Wolf to move her young co-star is real, and so, therefore, is her character's. If I have any complaints, it's that it's perhaps in need of a little more time to draw it attention. But as for the filmmaking, I have few, and for the acting, none. Susanna Wolf is superb as Rike, displaying expertly the quandaries raging within her mind in the face of an impossible situation, and almost entirely without dialogue. Very much recommended. Yes, this, when you mentioned it, sounded interesting, but it also sounded like I need a bit more concentration and attention than I was able to give it <laughs> this podcast, so um, I will certainly look to catch up with this one. Yeah, I strongly suggest you do. Um, I when I heard about this, I was immediately intrigued. And I thought that's quite interesting. And I've seen some other art based on the migrant crisis, particularly mm-hmm. um, so in a a photographic exhibition in France. I saw a lot of photographic work on the migrant crisis, and yeah. so I was quite intrigued to see a film um, take it on as well. Yeah, it's definitely a subject that really needs to be examined more. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite underrepresented, actually, it seems, for it being such a big thing. Yeah. Um, which I assume still goes on, but it's one of those things that seems to have phased out of the news cycle somewhat. Yeah, so it's one of these things, things that just, it, it just keeps happening, and so it's yes. not news anymore. It's now yeah. just a fact of life, yeah. And so I was intrigued by having heard about the shoot, that it was all practical and that it shot with like a 40, a 40 person crew or something yeah. like just on the side of this boat that looks like there's one person it's really effective that and this it's to see someone in real time struggling with an actual human body and you understand quite how difficult that is yeah yeah um which you don't often see in films people like will, will be able to like lift bodies like they're arnie yeah you know, quite a lot <laughs> of the time so that's quite nice, but just uh, to see a film like this too, with so little dialogue, it's, the conceit of it, according to the director, is almost that it's to be a silent film, because mm-hmm. there is there's a kind of very perfunctory dialogue at the beginning where she's saying, right, what's the patient's blood pressure, we need to do this to get out of the car, etc. Yeah. Then 
few brief calls to the Coast Guard, but again, it's very much about relaying information for the most part. Mm-hmm. So it's not like dialogue in the way that like people having a conversation or anything. Yeah. Um, and then a little bit between her and Kingsley, and that's almost it. There is nothing else really. Um, so it's all just played with action and the expressions on her face and Kingsley's face, and it's fantastic. Yeah. No, we'll give this a go, and then I'll take a track at uh, updating the Wikipedia page, which is the most perfunctory thing I've seen. It's, I mean, given given Wikipedia's normal home of the, the needlessly detailed recaps, this is basically the extent of what it says about Sticks. It's, it's a 2018 German-Austrian drama film directed by Wolfgang Fischer. It was screened in a pan- uh, panorama section at the 68th Berlin International Film Festival, and that's it. Yeah, that's all you get. <laughs> need, needs, needs maybe a little more detail there, you know what I mean? There's actually, there's a... An article from this some film prize called the Lux Prize or something like that. But there's an actual interview with the, mm. the director and the co-writer, which is probably worth reading too. It's a, a very highly recommended film. It's very very interesting. Yeah. So we're good to finish off this podcast then with a fairly small film that there definitely hasn't been a podcast on already. No. In this world. Um, <laughs> We're breaking ground here. We're going to talk about Avengers Endgame. Yeah, so little-known indie classic. Um, Unless it's been used for money laundering fronts, then going by the box office results, everybody who had the barest interest in seeing this film has already seen it. Or you're waiting for it to be in home formats, in which case you're probably not going to listen to this in case we spoil it for you. And we probably will, so if you are, then please, please just skip over this. Right, now that they've gone, it's either people who've already seen the film or people who have no interest whatsoever in it, so neither group really need all that much of a plot recap, so I will give you the short version. Our surviving heroes from the Infinity War, Gauntlet-y type thing, um, are rejoined five years after Thanos' hemi hemi mission? Is this decimation then would half be a hemi mission? I was trying to work that out. Is it semi or hemi? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. Um... <laughs> The Halfening. Yes, after the, <laughs> that's probably better, The Halfening. Yeah, so they're struggling to come to terms with the loss and the hemi-pocalypse that it's been brought about uh, through the mighty powers of contrivance. Paul Rudd's Ant-Man is accidentally retrieved from the quantum realm, which he was entrapped in at the end of the Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, but for him, only a few hours have passed due to quantum. Uh, that gets... <laughs> Basically, uh, yes. That gets him thinking about time travel, which is cracked after a short period of moping from a derain- uh, a damaged Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man and Mark Ruffalo's conglomerated Professor Hulk. They then go to great lengths for establishing their universe's rules for time travel and go on a time heist to capture the Infinity Stones from before Thanos can get them uh, to undo everything and then they must put them back where they found them, which makes for an unexpectedly clever and engaging middle stretch of this movie before throwing it out of the window in the final act alongside the laboriously and tediously established time travel rules in order to repeat the last half hour of the last film but with a slightly different end result. It's basically the Rocky II of the MCU. See you. <laughs> now, That's quite a good analogy, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thankfully, I don't care all that much about plot holes in comic book movies because, at best, they are 
always composed of loosely linked plot holes with a spackle of character and CG covering it, and adding time travel only compounds that, but it's not enough to ruin the heart of this film. Uh, It's not going to stop me calling it out, because it's badly written on a narrative level, uh, purely because if you're going to waste my time with the boring establishment of this time travel mechanic, I'd appreciate at least some kind of hand-wavy, throwaway reason that they go flying out of the window in this last act, just because you need to get to some contractually mandated CG showdown. But that's quantum for you. I'll take none of your dissing of Back to the Future, thank you very much. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's quantum for you, which pushes the boundaries of what's sensible in a universe that has actual magic in it. Now, the end state of this film is not that far off what you could have reasonably predicted, given the almost impossible to avoid news of release schedules and contract negotiations and the like. Uh, Given the dominance Marvel has had over the pop culture landscape over the past 20-odd film MCUs, this is the 22nd film or 21st or something like that, it's a a lot of them. It's a Uh, lot, yeah. yeah, It's been going since what? 2008, I think, first ones, first Iron Man, the first... Yeah, yeah, an awfully long time. Um, But even despite that, it it manages to throw in enough twists over the course to give this some interesting scope for the future films. And in its central aim, as a review of the highlights of the first season of these films, or whatever (laughs) we call these episodes, because the MCU is something very different from film, as we'd understand it, um, I think it does it really well. It benefits greatly from Chris Evans and Downey Jr. seeing light at the end of the tunnel, uh, both far less disinterested than in previous outings, and it's a solid send-off for them. As a cynical Gen Xer, I was surprised to see some minor public outpouring of emotion on their behalf, in the cinema I watched this in. Um, to me, it's like being upset about the rebranding of a chocolate bar, but I suppose people have grown up with these characters, as you say. It's been over a decade now. People can have grown up with these characters, and they have been plastered over every conceivable movie tie-in and merchandising. They're, they're everywhere. I can kind of see why it would kind of be part of their identity, and maybe losing that is in some way losing part of themselves. I, I can see their point of view, even if yeah, I'm far too cynical to even vaguely understand yeah. It's certainly more valid in this film than it was in the last one. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. you know that's never going to stick, so it was meaningless in the last one. But here, yeah, I, I get it. It's not so yeah. bad. It doesn't yeah. bother me here. <laughs> yeah, I, I could wit on for ages, like, but I won't, other than to say, despite the plot holes you could literally dive, drive a spaceship through, it mostly delivers on the spectacle and the emotion that a series closer needs, with enough humour and urgency to keep things mostly belting along for such, uh, such that the running time, for once, doesn't feel like a problem. This is up there with Marvel's best. Oh, but they still can't write female characters for Toffee, and we'd be better served minimising that until they hire someone who can. There's one scene so forced and undeserved in the final <laughs> act that's so embarrassing I pretty much cringe myself into a pretzel. Uh, look, come it, back after Black Widow and Captain Marvel films and we'll talk, but until then, maybe just don't draw attention to it. Is <laughs> it the crazy, powerful women shot in the middle of a fight? Yes. Where they're what, apparently all together. What annoyed me about that, right? <laughs> You've started me now. Uh, <laughs> what, what annoyed me? Like, okay, right, fine. You've got Captain Marvel for my qualms with that film. Strong female character and all that stuff. Yeah, good. Half her there, centre stage. Fine. Um, I think you've written yourself into a corner with that character and that's why you kind of wrote her out for most of this film. But anyway, she deserves to be there. And then... You've tried to create a kind of hero shot with all their the, all these strong female characters that they have. And it's like, okay, right, you've got Captain Marvel. Yes. Scarlet Witch, okay, kind of. And then the Mantis from Gardens of the Galaxy, not really. Minor supporting character at best. Pepper Pots. 
Yeah, Pepper Potts was a weird one. Pepper Black Potts? Black sister? Yes. Uh, again, I can, can almost get behind that, but, you know, it, it's like, he's a, it's a bunch of characters that you've barely defined at best. And, uh, yeah, no, no, you don't get to have that. Come back when you've written some actual films with females in mind and you know, we'll talk. But, no, uh, that that scene was just cringy. And, you know, at the same point, the sound swelling it's like, no, get away from me. That's just not right. Um, come back when you've done it properly. But uh, 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 that was a minor quibble uh, against an end sequence that, for once, kind of deserved to have all that kind of CG money thrown at it. Um the the scene where all the kind of previously disappeared heroes just show up through the portals, all that stuff, that works really well in the cinema scene. Um, uh, that's a that's a nice little uh, crescendo and a, a good way to kind of send this film uh, packing towards its uh, the final final end of it. All that worked very well. It's funny in places. It gives an awful lot of scope to move from from future for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It treats it does take some interesting risks with characters. There's some fat shaming I'm not quite so uh, happy about, given that um, as a fat man myself, I don't... <laughs> uh, poor Thor. I, I don't think putting Thor in a fat suit should automatically be funny, but um, to be fair, kind of is. Uh, yeah, I was like, I'm a fat man too, and it, it didn't bother me at all. So I saw that apparently there was like a lot of backlash and stuff like oh, I found it funny, yeah. and I'm fatter than them, so it's like, yeah. what's the problem? That Thamesworth, Chris, is it? That Chris? Yeah, that's that Thamesworth, isn't it? Yeah, he's just very funny. Um one of the funniest Hollywood Chris's that we have and it should be should be praised as such and it's nice to see Korg again of course <laughs> yeah sorry um, yeah. what do you make in general I enjoyed it but it is nowhere near as enjoying or well made as Infinity War I enjoy Infinity War so much more maybe that's got something of the kind of Empire Strikes Back a bit and it's the dark bit it's the dark chapter before like the come to the resolution right um, so maybe it's a bit more compelling that way but I, just, I think it's a more cohesive film the story's stronger than Infinity 1 Endgame's a bit all over the place in fact Endgame's three films hmm. and each one is reasonably entertaining on its own you've got yeah. sort of the first portion which is them dealing with it uh, and I yeah. quite like that they went forward in time five years yeah you know, it would um, never get greenlit but I would have loved to see a whole film just just with Captain America in support groups that, that would have been a really interesting way to, to put things. Like there's a le- web series leading up to it or something, at least. Yeah, there's there's a whole there's at least two or three series of uh, the television shows you could have done in that interregnum <laughs> if you'd if you'd wanted to put it out. That that was a really interesting, uh, really interesting concept to see what would happen because I I was assuming this would have been undone immediately. Uh, was my take of coming out of, uh, of uh, Infinity War, which I was nowhere near as positive uh, as you are. I thought Infinity War was quite dull. Um, but a, a very interesting setting that you kind of blaze through in about 40 to 50 minutes or something. Um, but yeah, so, yeah, yeah, could have done a little more exploration. So, yeah, there's that film. It's like sort of dealing with it. And is it the only bit in that section, apart from the convenient rat? Mm. Um, that I didn't really care for is the fact that Tony Stark would have in any way any qualms about whether he was going to do this or not. Yeah. Because if you have the entirety of Civil War being about his guilt about some people dying, do you really think he's going to um, not do something that might save the lives or bring back half of all the forms <laughs> in existence? <laughs> yes. No. Um, so, yeah, that's just, it, it doesn't 
you don't buy that there's ever any moral quandary there, which is a bit of a problem. I think it then, almost gets away with that for me, just because Robert Downey Jr. is really good. Yeah, um, I really like Robert yeah. Downey Jr. It's just it's like, <laughs> there's never any believable quandary there. Um, yeah. What I do like in that first section too is that while while I knew that the end of Infinity War didn't stick, they were obviously going to undo it, and I was right. I was never in any doubt. Mm. They didn't do it quite in the way I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although really not using the time stone and using other some ma- some other sort of magic isn't really that different it's the same thing <laughs> with a different name so yeah. uh, in this case it was quantum yeah. for reasons <laughs> <laughs> but then once they do that it becomes sort of it's sort of like back to the future too hmm. with a sort of a, a caper bend on it with yeah. them going back and interacting in interesting ways with the, pre- the events of the previous films and that's really inventive and it's funny and that whole middle section felt like a film its own again yeah it does uh, feel like three films smacked together yeah and that that may be my favorite bit as soon as you said it's going to be a time heist it's like okay right i'm yeah. on board with this so i'll, I'll play with along with you <laughs> yeah time heist. not a phrase it means anything but okay sounds good to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> and given like the first ant-man film is basically a heist movie and it's one of the more enjoyable ones in the yeah. mcu I thought, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on board with this um uh, it's not the strongest in all of its parts. I didn't particularly care much for the the changes to Jeremy Renner's character than his battle with Scarlett Johansson. Not great. Like, did they not have any idea what they were going to face? Again, I know I'm yeah. in danger of going down the whole plot hole problem that you um, said yourself you weren't going to talk about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's really quite enjoyable. And then the third bit final battle again full of plot holes like suddenly their special time thing doesn't matter um yeah. <laughs> okay um in the first film in infinity war they had to get special magic glove apparently a tony stark glove will do no what no but uh, yeah. but um doesn't really matter i did think it was going to really bother me though you're talking about the cgi battle at the end which is kind of like a redo of infinity war yeah and it's like, oh no, no, it's just going to be a dull battle again. Why are they all running each other? Why are these advanced space beings fighting in a way that's happened on Earth in the 1300s? Yes. It bothered me Black Panther, it bothered yeah. me in Infinity War, it really bothered me in Endgame. It's the most advanced technology and army on Earth and they've decided that projectiles, no, not, we don't need projectiles, that's We're not a thing. Run at each other. Yeah, <laughs> come on. It, it worked in the Lord of the Rings because they're basically medieval <laughs> armies. Yeah. It works in Game of Thrones because they're basically medieval evil armies these are space armies they wouldn't just run at each other it looks stupid and it was stupid in the phantom menace as well (laughs) so yeah that bothered me but fortunately that actually stops quite quickly yeah yeah um and it said that they mix up a wee bit because they're sort of moving around the battlefield and it's it's a bit different from just seeing them run at each other like we've seen at least twice already as i say in in infinity war and black panther in particular so each bit has its problems, but there's still great bits in each bit as well. Yeah. Um, and I was um, slightly concerned that when they said it was going to be three hours, like, oh, this sounds like it might be filler. Actually, I thought it just bombed along. Yeah. Which is quite pleasing. I, I was, as an absolute aside, nothing to do with anything, but all those, like, warnings about it being three hours and stuff and about going to the toilet, just get better bladder control. <laughs> Stop being rubbish. <laughs> three hour films, if that's a challenge to get through. You know, um, anyway, <laughs> so as if the three-hour films are a new thing or something, eh? Yeah. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> so that, I mean, they actually, it bombs along quite well, but there is, there are bits that, that, that are real problems, like the bit you were talking about, Scott, with the women. It's, 
I can see like as a thing completely separate from the film, it feels like a powerful shot. Like sort of that there's not been much representation in big budget films like this with like strong female characters and a lot of them, right? Mm. But it's so contrived. Yeah, it, it's it, so forced. I wouldn't I wouldn't have minded it if it had not been such an obvious PR response to the flack they've been taken for not having not having any female directors, not having really have a great deal of female representation in general throughout the 20-odd arc of films. And it, this was just sort of obviously, no, look, we're trying, we're trying, kind of shot that had no real place in the film otherwise than yeah. to give you that bit of scenery in it. Look, I, I, again, don't misrepresent it, I call for it. I think there should be many films that appeal to females and all that stuff. It, it, it is just good common sense and as many perspectives and takes on this as we can have, it's, that's great for... If, if, if cinema, if big-budget cinema is going to be defined by comic movies going forward, it should be from every possible angle we can think of, and that's great. But you don't deserve this shot in this film, and it just annoyed me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because in the, in the abstract, yeah, it's a good idea. Like Black Panther, I think Black Panther's a bad film. I, I actively did not enjoy that film. But sort of the meta of... Black Panther was sort of really important. Yeah. Um, because lots of people whose skin colour ain't mine have not seen themselves in yeah. um, films of that scale, that success on screen. Yeah. And there was always this nonsense that um, people of um, non white skin hues like didn't sell films and Black Panther blew that out of the water. Yeah. I just wish it hadn't been a crap film that did it. <laughs> um, maybe that'll, that'll lead the way to that being less of an issue in the future. Uh, but it's yeah, it's so forced, particularly when yeah, they don't know how to write women. Yes. Most of the women are either they're kind of trophies or they're men with boobs. Mm. You know, they're not women. So, although they're not always the best characters, anyway, even the men don't always have like the most or well, the strongest character development. So it's not just a problem with yeah, yeah. Um, it being women. But but that shot was so out of place. Again, as I say, in the abstract, it works with a powerful image, but just in context, it's moronic. Because, what there's this battle raging that it's apparently like got thousands and thousands and thousands of participants, presumably taking place over some very large area, and yet they all manage to find each other. Yeah. On the battlefield, in the middle of battle, at the same time, which no, it's just stupid. And the, the line about, like, actually, it's like she's got backup or whatever it is. It's like, mm. just so naff. It's the only scene in three hours of filmmaking that is about time travel, intergalactic travel, superheroes, all that and stuff that made me roll my eyes because it was so <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, yeah <laughs> now, it shouldn't be that case. I, I don't. You could have done that scene better. If you were going to do it, you should have done it better. That's that's my complaint with it. It's it's just awkward. Yeah. And it's annoying that it becomes a point that you need to talk about because I I it's a positive thing in the abstract, like you say, but it's just this specific implementation of it is so yeah. bad. It's, so- it's ham fisted at yeah. best. Yeah. 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 Um I guess we're full on into spoilers and stuff, right? you made that sort of fairly clear at the beginning of this either you've seen it or you don't care or you won't mm. listen to it in case of spoilers Thanos dies 10 minutes into the film yeah I wasn't and expecting I that was fantastic yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then they brought 
Thanos back in it. Oh, <laughs> oh. okay. That's dull. <laughs> no, but not just Thanos, also his least interesting bodyguards that I can barely remember. <laughs> oh, oh the, the magic weird person. Good. I'm, I'm glad he's back, whoever he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, that was really disappointing. I thought when they killed him off, because that was really unexpected. It's like, and it, it was so without ceremony as well. Yeah. Thor's just pissed off, chops his head off. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, I like this. I like the way this is going. Mm-hmm. And I was really hoping that for the rest of the film, there would be no villain. Yeah. Because <laughs> they've got enough of a struggle trying to restore the universe. They don't really need a villain. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if it was that maybe, like, Thanos has the line, I'm inevitable. Yeah. Right. Which is silly, but, well, but you could sort of go down that same sort of line, but it not be him. Yeah. That somebody else, the, the, the universe fills his place, but with a different character. Mm-hmm. And at least be something different. I mean, I suppose the good thing about the MCU is that they didn't just... I mean, while he was an incredibly minor character right at the beginning, and back in the original Guardians of the Galaxy, and, and before that, just his, um, the original Avengers film, I think, mm-hmm. um, they have built up to him. Yeah. Right? And he's a character clearly insane, but a character with understandable motivation. Yeah. Right? It wasn't megalomania, which really bores me. It wasn't you know, want, want to rule the world or rule the universe or something. It's like he believed, wrongly, obviously, but believes that he's doing this for the right reasons. Yeah. That's interesting. So he's actually an interesting character, Thanos, but then he sort of did what he wanted, and then it should just end in the fact that they had the potential to not go with the same thing again. Oh, great. Ah, oh, no. They're basically just doing that again. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I find that really disappointing, actually, because I thought when they did that so early, that, ah, okay, this this film really could be doing something a wee bit interesting. It, it doesn't... It's, so there's a few things here that kind of I'm frustrated by that they didn't really explore. Yeah. Uh, that said, I still I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think talking about it now, I feel like I enjoyed it more than I actually remember at the cinema. I come at the cinema, <laughs> thought, oh, that was quite good. But now I feel like I enjoyed it more. So perhaps on a rewatch, I will actually um, enjoy it more. So yeah, the problems I have with it are some of them like kind of plot hole stuff this is stuff that always bothers me because my logic circuits are always firing basically <laughs> um, and a few structural problems but for the most part yes it's a very entertaining film the The only real problem I had and it's fortunately it was far less of a problem than I anticipated though was Captain Marvel because I did not enjoy that film I did not like that character and I was really concerned. The trailer seemed to put it this way: too, that she was going to be a really significant role. Yeah. And I was examining that, and I was thinking, is it just because I don't like Brie Larson, or at least Brie Larson's portrayal of Captain Marvel, or is it a kind of a a resentment at this Johnny Come Lately thing? And I honestly suspect it's more of that than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but still, yeah, as you say, they've written themselves into a corner with that character because she's basically magic as well. Yeah. Um, and when she does turn up, she basically turns up as some sort of arsehole ex machina. <laughs> um, but yeah. fortunately, fairly sparingly used, yeah. which is good because that that could have really bothered me. Yeah, I don't uh, know what they're going to do with that character going forward because it's the same problem we've had with Superman. And yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to turn this into a DC versus Marvel argument again. But like, say what you will about the haphazard execution of DC films, right? Both Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. 
gave us the idea that Superman is quite a boring character in the abstract, but essentially because of that, he is a god. You can't kill him by any conventional methods. He's he's basically everywhere and can do anything. So basically, those films were what happens when God shows up. And then, for all its many, many faults, just as League was saying, what happens when God dies? Right. Those are very interesting abstract questions that you can do with that character. And I don't think they're going to do anything even remotely similar with Picard and Marvel. I have no confidence that Marvel will do anything remotely interesting with that character other than just have her take on increasingly powerful things. We've already seen in this film that she can stand toe-to-toe with the conqueror of the galaxy. The, the guy that... The guy that wiped out half of the universe, uh, apparently, can she can go toe to toe with and uh, not really but break sweat. Yeah, and so so Thor what can't yeah. actual god Thor? Yeah, so what are you going to do that's going to be a threat to that character? It was a problem with that film when she's she's dropped from orbit, <laughs> smashing the planet, and is fine. It's like okay, so what are you going to do to damage this character? Where where is any dramatic tension going to come from in this character? And you don't even have her kryptonite yet. I presume she must have something, but uh, that's. Yes. That's what Superman films devolve to. It's increasingly bizarre ways to get kryptonite into it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, not not full of positive, warm, happy thoughts about that character already, which is uh, unfortunate given that. Well, well, I guess we'll see. I, I'm not convinced that this whole uh, she will be the future of MCU going forward is actually a thing. I think it's again the PR, uh, more of a PR move than anything else. But we'll see. We'll see. And again, I want to say that talking of DC and Marvel, Scott. That once again, Wonder Woman did a much better job of having that um, female superhero first, and it's a much better. Absolutely, film. yes, absolutely. Yeah, up until its um, boring CGI ending, but that's a problem with yeah. all of these films, <laughs> not yeah. with that film in particular. Yeah, um, so I want to see more of Gal Gadot and not um, Brie Larson, please. <laughs> Fun film. It's um, it's quite an impressive project to have basically spent eleven years and twenty two or twenty three films building up to this. Yes. And for it to be so cohesive. Yeah. That's... I I mean, so many different... I mean, I've never predicted kid visually for the Marvel films. I've said it several times before. I'll probably say it again. They tend not to be remarkable because they're they're still... They're trying to have a cohesiveness which makes them sort of bland. Yeah. Um, But in terms of the tones of the plots of the films, there have been some really different things. Um... I mean, it's not a 1970s espionage thriller, but I really enjoyed The Winter Soldier, and it definitely has a distinct tone that's yeah. different from the rest. The Guardians of the Galaxy and the Thor films in particular, mm-hmm. especially Thor Ragnarok, it's very different, and then Ant-Man, it's kind of heist film. So they've tried different things within that universe, and they've been successful, and he brought in all the cards, and then to still make a cohesive thread through all of that so I'm waving my hands about here because that <laughs> will be picked up by the microphone obviously, yeah. uh, to have this cohesive thread through all of that, to make it still not just an absolute mess. Yeah. Um, and to have established enough of the characters, the even characters here that don't get a lot of screen time, that they're still there enough. And to care about the characters, I find something actually plot, in, plot um, important for them to do. Like Tilda Swinton coming back up. Yeah. Um, that That's like one character from Doctor Strange and... So, so I guess it's sort of fan service to bring it back, but at the same time, I should know it was meaningful. Yeah, and kind of interesting. So the wee touches like that is the whole enterprise has been incredibly well crafted. It's a pretty impressive thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a, again in the meta of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole, there have been some bad films in there, some that have worked much better than others. But as a 
as a whole, it's an impressive feat. Um, and I've certainly um, found it more enjoyable than not for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely hitting over 50% with Marvel films. And, oh, um, that's comfortable, I think. Yeah, and that's even as someone who's probably more of a sceptic about these sort of films than, than most seem to. So again, I, I can see why this was sort of emotionally affecting to have like people who've grown up with uh, the go um, go away and this being the kind of last hurrah for them. But I think it opens up a, a lot of opportunities for what they could do going forward. So I'm I'm actually quite interested to see that uh, between that and uh, opening up wider the the Disney conglomerate uh, eating Fox and uh, various other people gives us a, a, a whole lot more options to go from Spider Man. We could see potentially see the X-Men kind of franchise coming into this. There's all sorts of interesting ways this could go in future, so uh, it's certainly given it a new lease of life as it goes into, well, I would call it phase two, but I think it's technically phase four or whatever the the marketing slogan they want to use for it. Um, But yeah, the the next lot of uh, Marvel arc, if you like, um, will certainly be interesting. As I say, it's it's not really filmmaking in the traditional sense anymore, because one criticism I guess you could have of this is that you're not going to get anything like the full impact of this if you've not seen the previous 20-odd films, but... They've had, they're such pop culture titans that you can't not have seen those 20 odd films. It's, it's not really a valid criticism. It's like, sure, if you, if you go and see this film without seeing all the rest of them, you don't get the full impact, but you yeah, probably you, have, yeah. you know? Yeah, but um, I, I guess the way you're talking about it, it almost feels like a, like a big screen TV series. Exactly, yes, yes. Yeah, because um, yeah, there was some noise around, like, Apparently, like, Endgame didn't cater to people who hadn't seen it before, but A, why the hell should it? Yeah. B, if you're going to see this but haven't seen any others, what is wrong with you? Yeah. (laughs) They're not difficult to come by. They're hardly unknown. And if you're going to drop into the 22nd or 23rd episode of a TV programme and not having seen the others, you're an idiot. Yes. (laughs) So, no, just shut your stupid faces. (laughs) (laughs) With where it goes in the future, there's... I don't, I don't have as much hope for the future actually, Scott. Because um, uh, one of the most interesting characters is gone. If Thor ends up in the Guardians of the Galaxy, then I'm totally on board for that. That's not yeah. the way we go. That could be really fun because that was really good in Infinity War. Uh, Thor and the Noble Rabbit Rocket, <laughs> but he's like sort of handed over to things to the Valkyrie. So I guess she would be like female Thor, which I believe is at least one version of the comics is a female Thor. But she's quite boring. And then I like Anthony Mackie a lot, but if he's going to be the new Captain America, he's not a magic man, he's just a man-man. How's that going to work? So I, I have questions. Yeah. Um, I would possibly agree if Chris Evans hadn't been so bored in his role <laughs> since actually before the first film. I, I don't... <laughs> it feels like that, yeah. No, it's not the, the Chris Evans going away thing that bothers me. It's not just, um, it's not just the, the actual the yeah. character, Anthony Mackie's Falcon. It's like, yeah, but he's just a ma- he's not like a he's just a boy soldier. in a jetpack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a boy with a jetpack, he's a man um, with wings. So like, yeah, man, how is that going to work? But okay, maybe they'll, they'll come to that. Um, yeah, and then yeah, it's it's a good film. It's a good way to end that. I mean, and they could just end it there. I don't think they will because they've got all of that money to make, and they've got like I'd say like half a dozen at least film a TV series lined up. Um, yeah. And some of like the main ones will be on the new Disney Channel. Yes. Apparently, um, Hulu gets 
ones. Yeah, uh, to be honest, if there's anything that's that's putting a, a crimp on the, the what Marvel would do going forward, it's this uh, Disney streaming service uh, looming because. We've all seen what Disney does to its franchises to yeah, fill up. Uh, can't leave stuff alone. Yeah, we, we've all seen or at least heard of the sequels to actually good films that they've just driven the dirt, like um, like The Lion King Seven, to, uh, which is yeah. where, where, you know basically like a spin-off series about like minor characters and all that stuff. They're, they they've bled these things to death. The Latin sequels and things. Yeah, yeah um, and you could do that to death in Marvel as well, but. God, we'll see. I think uh, that acquisition of the X-Men stuff, I think, gives them enough leeway to do a whole bunch of stuff, at least new or rebooted again, uh, with uh, that could work. But well, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, there's a problem too, is that they've made so much money. Yeah. It's now going to be extremely hard to justify to their shareholders not making, trying to cash in more of these to make this same amount of money, if not more. So it's like, Mm-hmm. They kind of feel beholden, and it's not like Disney have any scruples about that yeah. artistically. So uh, we'll yeah. see. I guess we'll see. Yeah, it's baffling. I think it's two, two and a half billion worldwide, and it's nowhere near finished um, yeah. at the time of recording. That's for yeah. home video. Yeah, <laughs> such an incredible amount of money. So let's hope they do something positive with it. But uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, you know, like return copyright back to a reasonable. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Yeah, it's the problem if, if the company is making things that you enjoy, but then you realise there are so many reasons to despise Disney. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yes, uh, but I guess that's it from us then for this evening, Scott. Pretty much. Uh, a couple of uh, bits of feedback on the old Twitters there. Yes, so uh, from M. Toller, uh, Matt Toller on Twitter, of course. Uh, He's gotten a lot of enjoyment from the Hellboy comics over the years. Didn't see the newest Hellboy movie, but it seemed off from the get-go, and the reviews seemed to have backed up my instinct. Not sure if a, if a live-action will ever be right for such a stylized character. A lot of people loved Pearlman in that role, but I've always thought his version wasn't great either. Uh, I guess I can kind of see that. i say I wasn't, wasn't all that on board with the original Hellboy films. Uh, on the subject of Endgame, at Blake writes, of course says that Endgame felt like well, just as you say actually Drew uh, it felt like three movies arranged end to end or more broadly a victory lap for the franchise and a loose course forward any parent-child scene felt okay the rest with a few exceptions seemed more commercial and creative but active enough to keep its three hours rolling not that they necessarily wanted to sit through hours, three hours of it but that being said and uh, Matt Stoller on Endgame says that well, it's by all accounts a good movie, but he will never know. He's so damn tired of these characters, these actors, and uh, people endlessly talking about these bland, safe, formulaic movies. I think he permanently checked out around about Captain Civil War, uh, Captain America Civil War. So I'm assuming you checked out well before we read his comments on this episode then. Yes. <laughs> he's reduced to commenting on movies that he's he's not seen because there's so much superhero crap. And uh, d- d- yes, I... I you know, I, I swing back and forward on this on a, an almost, uh, well, 10 daily basis. Because if, if you ask me if I record this podcast, you'll get a different answer. On the one hand, there's not actually that many comic book movies when you think about it. But on the other hand, those comic book movies have taken up so much of the budget and mind space and, you know, the, the, the kind of scheduling for tentpole movies going forward that... It, it's seemingly very hard for anything that's not a comic book movie to try and break into that. Or Star and Wars. If you're not true, Star yes. Wars or that, then you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, yeah, I, I, I see it both ways. I mean, if you avoided all comic book movies, you're not really avoiding all that many films that year, but you're probably avoiding like ninety percent of the film of like studio budgets of films yeah. from that year. Uh, and it would be really interesting to see what you did with that budget if you applied it to something else, even if it is something like you don't like, like Avatar or something, if, just some other avenue that could be this money could be funneled into, and you don't see that anymore. I mean, what? I'm not sure what the last kind of big budget, truly imaginative thing that made it on screen that was not comic book movie based that um, that, that existed, and that's that's a strange thing to think about. Uh, the Hobbit, maybe I guess. The Hobbit. I don't know if you go it's back. Still, it's still stretched thin. Yes. Um, oh God. Mad Max probably wasn't big enough to count, but Mad Max Fury Road maybe. Um, maybe. Uh, you know, there's not a particularly big budget for no, like no. a surprise success, and yeah, so yeah, I see it both ways. It would be nice to see a lot of that pot being a bit more distributed and a bit more. Um, I'd rather see more smaller budget films than a couple of really high budget, extraordinarily CG'd to the nuts um, movies coming out. But well, oh, the way I see this thing too with comic films is like, in, like you say, in terms of actual number of films, it isn't many. Mm-hmm. It's a handful a year, half a dozen maybe, in a year that's got a lot. It's probably not as many as that. Yeah. And if you compare it to the days of westerns, when there were literally hundreds made per year, mm-hmm. back in the thirties and forties, maybe the fifties as well, literally hundreds per year, crazy number. Um, it, it doesn't compare. What the difference is, though, and it's something similar to you saying about budget, Scott. Though, it just sucks all the oxygen out. Yeah. It's because. In some cinemas, if you live in a uh, where you live, as a cinema doesn't have all that many screens, you don't have anything else to watch. Yeah, every screen will be filled with Avengers Endgame, and there won't be anything else to see. So that's the big problem I see with yeah. it. It's not yeah. in terms of absolute numbers. There's not that many. It's just that it just sucks all the oxygen out and it takes literally takes all the physical space for seeing things in the cinema. Yeah, I, I would um, rather see those baskets filled with lots of smaller eggs than a couple yeah. of really big eggs, which is yeah. kind of where you are at the minute. Yeah, yeah and there's the, the mindshare thing too you mentioned. But actually, it's not it's not smaller films that I think are lacking. I still think there's a pretty decent number of them, although maybe nowadays they're more likely to turn up on Netflix or something mm-hmm. be produced by Netflix or perhaps Amazon. Yeah, any mid-budget sort of action film you probably get is, is gone it. completely. Yeah, uh, there was no middle The same thing's happened with video games. You either got indie games or mm. AAA stuff. There's no middle ground. Yeah. So it's the same with films. I guess Mad Max would be like a middle, mid-ground film, I reckon. Mm. That was a rarity. Yes, um, yes. So that's it. It's not. It's not that there's no small films. There's plenty. It's, there's just no mid ground anymore. There's no sort of recently budgeted, recently popular thing. It, it's either it's, it's like massive or go home. Um, yeah, and it's it's slightly worrisome and a bit boring. Really, it's like you know, I, I don't want to watch something that's spent a hundred million dollars on just the CGI part of it. You know, especially when yeah. the story's not all that great. <laughs> Can I just have some decent dramas, please? I really like dramas. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yes. What was Matt's point? <laughs> I, I feel we've, we've wandered away from it. We were just saying he's not going to... No, I think we just agreed with him. That's, uh, ah, okay. that, that, that was more or less, uh, I think. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> agreed with him at length. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that will wrap us up for today. And uh, we'll be with you again fairly soon. But until then, we hope that you take care of yourself and each other. If you want to get us 
uh, get in touch with us for any reason feedback on this any other reason probably the best place to do it is Twitter uh, we're on there at FudsOnFilm you can do it through, uh, through email of course we're there at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com uh, but yeah till next time I will say a goodbye and I'm sure that Drew Tamdale you will too you're not that rude are you say goodbye Drew do it <laughs> yes fare thee well folks ta-da <laughs> <laughs>